Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for bringing each one of us out tonight. And Lord, we just thank you for the protection that we had on the way here. Lord, we just ask now as we investigate your word that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And Lord, we pray that our church would learn and be among the overcomers, that you may bless us and use us in your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, and let's read the letter to the church at Pergamos. We'll start reading in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So that hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, of the seven letters to the seven churches, this is probably the most cryptic uh, of all of the letters, meaning there are more things in this letter that no one has any real definite idea of what is being talked about. And the first thing that we read in here is, again, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos, uh, we get to the introduction, but let's just review some of these strange things. It says, where Satan's seat is. Reading several commentaries. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's an awful lot of interesting, uh, how shall we say it, uh, uh, Fables, uh, interesting um, prattle, uh, just a bunch of things that, and some of it's not even interesting. Uh, they come up with all kinds of strange ideas, and, and again, we want to keep the Bible. Uh, I don't, I've had several discussions over the last couple of weeks, and, and really our theme, our desire, as we go through the scriptures, is to be as simple and as biblical as we can. Uh, that has been a theme in all of the Bible teaching I've ever done in this church, and, and I want it to keep. We don't need to build elaborate systems to understand what the Word of God is speaking. Another one is this hidden manna. Wow. Talk about going to seed. Trying to figure out the hidden manna, and then when they get to the white stone with a name written in it, uh, even the most bizarre of the bizarre say, we really don't know what he's talking about here. 
And I'm not going to claim to answer all of those things. There are many things God does not intend us to truly understand. If he did, he would explain it. But as we start, we're going to find out what the key to this entire passage is because Jesus always introduces himself in the way that is going to have the most to do with everything he says to the church. He only lists one attribute here. These things saith he, verse 12, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now we have seen this sword mentioned over and over again, and it is going to continually be a sub-theme or so all the way through the book of Revelation, and the sword is the word of God. We go to Hebrews chapter 4. The sword, uh, the the word of God is sharp, quick, it's, wow. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Let's take the effort, turn there. For some reason, my quoter is not working tonight, so we'll just, for the word of God is quick and powerful. Verse 12, for the word of God is quick, living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I want us to go back here to verse 12 in Revelation chapter 2 and look at this. These things saith he, and those next two words are very important, which... Hath. Now, the word hath, of course, is not a modern English word. We use the, uh, the word most of the time, has, but this th ending uh, that is on here is a continual sense which continues to have. It belongs to Christ, and one of the most dangerous things that a church can do is try to wield the sword on their own. How many sermons I have heard over the years in different places where the preacher has taken the sword out of the hand of him who, to whom it belongs and begin to wax eloquent along his own thoughts and his own processes here. I heard a man preach a sermon... Uh, it was an amazing message, had nothing to do with the text, on why Abraham was going to have to explain to Mrs. Abraham, was his words, and of course we know her name was Sarah, uh, how he had killed Isaac. Now you read your Bible, and that thought never crossed Abraham's mind. He said, I and the lad are going to go yonder and worship in return. He knew what was going to happen, but he also knew that God had promised that Isaac would continue his seed. And so uh, Abraham's faith was in God and his word. We've got to make sure of something, and is that the sword stays in the hand of him to whom it belongs. 
If you pick up a book, and I don't recommend this on Christian warfare, so often they will paint a picture of the Christian taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and swinging to and fro and slaying the enemies of God. That is so foreign to the Bible. And the sword belongs to Jesus. It is the sword that goes out of his mouth in the battle of Armageddon when Jesus fights the armies of this earth. It is the sword that goes out of his mouth that is going to smite. I love the idea of being a soldier in Jesus' army because Jesus does all the fighting. And we better be careful. Wars have been fought because people who have started their own religions and called them churches and called them Christian churches believe that Jesus gave them the sword to conquer the world. One little phrase here. And I could spend all night applying this. Jesus is introducing himself to the church at Pergamos as he which hath. And I want to get this worded just correct here. The sharp sword with two edges. It's amazing how the Word of God works. How many of you, well, I doubt anybody would remember our series on Thursday nights. This was probably about five or six years ago on parables. And we went through the the tool that Jesus used, this idea of parables in taking figurative stories to teach the truth. And yet Jesus did something with those parables no other person in human history has done. While he was cutting one way, using this figurative story to help those who believe in him to understand more clearly the word of God, He was cutting the other way and taking those who had already made up their mind they would not believe the Bible and utterly confusing them and driving them mad all at the same time. He was not just giving us a story that had application. When he tells those, uses those parables, we read them today. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And all of a sudden you say, Boy, I see more clearly what God was trying to teach. Someone who refuses to believe the Bible comes up and says, those parables are just made-up stories to confuse people. Ha-ha, it's working. It's cutting both ways at the same time. God's Word does its work. It is our job as the church, as the body of Christ, to do what? present his word to the world in which we live. And as Jesus is addressing this church, he's saying, listen, Pergamos, the sword belongs to me. The sword is very sharp. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. 
And the warning is, you at Pergamos are in danger of being cut with the sword because you are not matching up to the words of Jesus Christ. This church is going to be in need of paying attention. I don't know how many of you have ever handled a really sharp knife. But if you have, you normally end up, if you're very careful, you normally end up with some very small slices on the edge of your fingers where you weren't very careful. Uh, if you are not careful, you can do all kinds of really dangerous things with a very sharp knife. That's why Jesus holds it, not us. We pay attention to the Word of God. And now we get into one of the first confusing or cryptic statements here. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And boy, people are trying to figure out whether Jesus was referring to the pagan temples that were in Pergamos which there were many of them, and someone even came up with the idea that there was a, a temple named the Seed of Satan. And of course, that must be what he was referring to, but there's no evidence that there was any such temple ever built in Pergamos. So, and by the way, there were temples to false gods in every major metropolitan city uh, in the Roman Empire. By the way, uh, Solomon had built places of false worship in the city of Jerusalem to, to accommodate his wives that would not turn from their false gods to the true God of Israel. So why would it be referring to the temples? Could we just make it very simple? We, we go through this. The seat, of course, is referring to the throne. The throne is where the king sits. Amen? It's very simple. This was a city. This was an area that was wholly inside Satan's control. You know how your life is to be a temple for God? We pray, thy kingdom come, meaning primarily... God, you sit upon the throne of my life and reign through me that I would do the things that would be under your control and not under my control. We would pray that God's kingdom will soon come to this earth and we will not have to put up with stock markets and, uh, and, and presidents and congresses and all of these politicians who will do nothing that is correct or right or honest. Listen. The city of Pergamos was a city that when Jesus looked at it and characterized it, he said, Satan has a throne there. He is in charge of what goes on in the city of Pergamos. Now, would that not be a scary statement? Later on, he's going to say, where Satan dwelleth. I mean, the devil liked this city. He had his way. Now, how many of you think it's bad in New York? Oh, I mean, I see a few hands going up. 
I mean, you think it's worse than Houston. I mean, they do have a far higher murder rate than we do. But there's, a, there's enough wickedness in New York City. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? And I've heard preachers characterize New York City just like Pergamos where Satan rules and he's in control of everything. But let me tell you, that is not true. The devil is not in control of everything in New York City. There are still people who esteem honesty. Of course, none of them are in City Hall, but uh, uh, there are still people who know that it's wrong to murder. Listen, you cannot bribe city officials in New York City very easily. Why do you think we went through all of those hoops at the building department? Because we wanted to comply with regulations. You can't even give the inspector a cup of coffee when he walks in because he will feel like you're trying to bribe him and he could actually lose his job over that. It's, it's gotten scary, but let me tell you, the reason those regulations are in effect is because people are trying to root out corruption. That's not the way the devil works. The devil loves corruption. Are we still together here? I believe the reason why Jesus characterizes the city of Pergamos as... The seat of Satan is because it was simply an area that was dominated by the direction and the power and the authority of the devil himself. It was a place where he liked to take a vacation, where thou dwellest, where when he wasn't really busy causing some problem somewhere else, he'd stop by Pergamos personally and spend a little time there. I mean, that's what the word dwell means now, isn't it? Would you agree with me that if that is a simple and biblical understanding of those words, Pergamos was a pretty bad place to be. It was one of those places where as a Christian, you would not want to be. You would feel like an outsider. I mean, people would stare at you as you walk down the street. People would look at you and say, there's one of those. There was, as we go through here, we're going to find out that even in this church, there was much accommodation to the world. And Jesus was condemning this church for allowing these things inside. And he is saying, listen... I know what you're doing in Pergamos and I know what you have to put up with. I know the city that you live in. And by the way, I don't know about you, but as I read this and I began throwing the commentaries, well, I can't throw them across the room. I just push the button until my office is put back together again and get rid of them and say, boy, I'm glad I'm done reading that stuff. He said, sometimes you get a little discouraged because it just seems like the devil is in control. But this isn't Pergamos. We got a long ways to go before we get that bad. Be encouraged. Because if they could serve the Lord in Pergamos, 
you can serve the Lord in New York City. Amen? Do you believe that? Are you doing that? That's where we need to be. Amen? That's why he's giving this letter. He's saying, listen, you think it's bad and we're going to find out how bad it is. But first, he's going to give them accommodation. You see, Jesus is interested in a couple of things. He's going to bring them up right now. Thou holdest fast my name. Jesus' name is important. It is attached to so many things. It is one of the most common swear words. And by the way, don't go in for substitute swear words. Gee whiz is a substitute for Jesus Christ. Jeez, where do you think that came from? Jesus. Don't allow yourself substitute cursing. Jesus was looking at this church and he said, even in Pergamos, he said, you have held fast to my name. How many people attribute to Jesus? What was one of the first statements? Jesus drank wine. He made water in the wine. It's okay. Hey, let me tell you something. Jesus' name is not associated with drunkenness. That was one of the tricks that the scribes and the Pharisees tried to use. You're repeating the blasphemy of them when you put Jesus in. And it wouldn't hurt for you to remind some of these people that Jesus was not a drunkard. He was not a glutton. That's what the people who hated Jesus said about him. Is that whose side you want to be on? Well, man, I'm sorry I didn't mean to offend you there. Well, that is offensive. Because Jesus' name is not associated with that. There used to be a preacher. This was back over 100 years ago. And uh, he believed that it was okay to have an occasional hot toddy before you went to bed at night, and, uh, which is an alcoholic beverage, supposed to make you sleepy, I guess, and until one of the liquor companies found out what brand of liquor he was using to make his hot toddies and said, this is a brand Pastor so-and-so endorses. That was reported to him, and that was the last drink he ever took. Why do we need to go there? Amen. Be careful what you do with Jesus' name. He, had come, he took this church that we're going to find had lots of problems. And he said, you've held fast to my name. And what's the second part? And hast not denied my faith. Now, what is Jesus' faith? How can we delineate or, or differentiate between what would be Jesus' faith and what might be rightly called faith? Well, what is the center point of the faith that belongs to Jesus? 
the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. What, what else could be the center point of faith that belongs to Jesus other than himself? Well, what do most places that call themselves churches put their faith in? The church building, the church organization. Uh-oh, you've just denied the faith that belongs to Jesus when you've substituted something else. You see, that's why there are no sacraments at Open Door Bible Baptist Church. Because we don't want your faith to be in some ceremony. The word sacrament means mystery. We don't want your faith to be in some mysterious event that you partake of in the church. And somehow through that mystery, you would get closer to God. Now that would be a mystery if it really happened. But what is the mystery is that anyone would believe that. That you as a human being can come to another human being who dresses funny and talks funny and says certain things and that that person somehow can move you closer to Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, when you say it like that, it doesn't make a bit of sense. That's right. That's why I say it like that and they don't. You see, holding fast to the faith, how many things have been attempted to be added to the faith of Jesus Christ? I mean, we have religious leaders today um, coming out with things like, well, evolution is totally congruent with the scriptural, uh, with the scripture. Now, how could somebody say that? You have to go to school and take philosophy classes to learn out how to be that disconnected in your thinking process. It doesn't come by accident. You have to be trained in order to be able to take evolution, which is a process of total random chance, and creation which is God-ordained and God's power, which puts every molecule in order and say, oh, they're both saying the same thing. Do you see the difference there? How can we say that our faith is in Jesus? But if you don't get wet in that baptistry, you're not going to heaven. We had a fellow show up a few years ago and said, I don't like the way you baptize. He said, why not? He said, you don't baptize in Jesus' name. I said, no, wait a minute. We baptize, I read the scripture, I quote the scripture, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. How is that not baptizing someone in Jesus' name? Well, you're not supposed to use the Father or the Holy Ghost. Only supposed to say Jesus. I said, I don't know where you're from or what you're from, but I'll tell you what, it ain't Bible. Found out a half an hour later, a strenuous half an hour later, that he believed unless you mixed your faith with the waters of the baptistry, you had no hope of heaven. Well, let me tell you something. If you mix your faith with anything, you have polluted that faith and it will not get you to heaven. You see, the church at Pergamos did not 
deny his name. They held fast to his name. They did not deny his faith. They kept their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I had someone years ago describe our church. He said, your church is like little house on the prairie. I said, what? What do you mean by that? He said, it's just very simple and very rudimentary. He says, you don't go in for all of these really complex theological... Amen! That's what we want to be. That's what it means to hold his faith, not deny it. We're not going to add to it. We're not going to take away from it. By the way, we still have church. It's not, it's not, when we have fellowship, we have a fellowship. But that's not what our church is about. Our church is about being the body of Christ to serve him in the local area in which we find ourselves in yea to the uttermost part of the earth. Our business is serving God. Our business is supporting missionaries. Our business is helping young and struggling churches and getting new churches started. This is what we ought to be about. Our business is about telling people in this area how to be born again the Bible way. Jesus said to this church, you've held fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And boy, people go to town on this. Some guy in the medieval ages made up a story about Antipas. You know what? No one knows who he is. There is no historical record to tell us who Antipas was other than he was a man who faithfully served God and because of his service for God paid the ultimate price. He was killed by the authorities. How many of you remember the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7? Stephen was openly stoned in the streets with the endorsement of all of the temple hierarchy. Why do you think there was no reprisal by Rome for the, for the riot and the murder of this man in the streets? It was because the high priest himself was endorsing this thing and the, and the soldiers of Rome knew that if they upset that high priest guy, that they were going to have a real riot on the streets of Jerusalem and they were the ones that were going to be the target of the hatred and animosity and so Stephen's death was let go. It just wasn't an issue worth worrying about. If we take that same record and apply it to Pergamos, doesn't it fit perfectly where Satan's seat is? This man was murdered openly, unashamedly by those who were in control in Pergamos and nothing was done about it. Isn't that a scary thought? Hey, let me tell you, there are places in the world where Christians can and are being murdered because they are Christians and no one will lift a finger to do anything about it. it happens. 
Doesn't that sound like a place where Satan just might be in charge? Don't you think we ought to heed the warning and pray that our city would never become a Pergamos? But if it does, what are we going to do? We're going to hold fast his name and we're not going to deny his faith. He had told the church at Smyrna, listen, you're going to endure persecution. You're going to be put in prison. Some of you are going to be put to death. He, he didn't have to talk future tense to the church at Pergamos. It had already happened. This church knew what it was. And yet Jesus, even though the devil had the power to openly murder this man named Antipas for his faith in Jesus Christ, he was not going to let them off the hook. He was not going to say, you live in a wicked city, you, live in, you are putting up with so much more than anybody else is, and I understand your shortcomings. Let me tell you something, Jesus does not understand our inability to be obedient to his word. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he said, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit within you. By the way, you want evidence of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Read Acts 1.8, and ye shall be what? Witnesses. Go tell somebody about Jesus. Go encourage someone to serve Jesus more. And you'll find the Holy Spirit is in you and using you. Let's, let's get that. Let's, but Jesus here, he says, but I have a few things against thee. Verse 14. Because thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And he's going to explain to us what the doctrine of Balaam is. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, here are the characteristics of the doctrine of Balaam. They cast a stumbling block. Now, how many of you know what a stumbling block is? How many of you have ever stubbed your toe in the middle of the night? Uh, the idea here was more along walking along a pathway in darkness or limited sight, and someone puts something in the pathway that will cause you to turn out of the pathway or to become lost. That, that is the idea of what the stumbling block is. Every once in a while, praise God, this doesn't happen very often in New York City. Of some mean, degradant youths putting something, a trash can or something, in the path of a blind man. So that he will stumble and fall. That's the idea. Now, why would somebody in the church of Jesus Christ want to hinder other people from serving God? Does that make sense to anybody? It ought not. But let me tell you, it does happen. You know why? 
simply because I've gone all, I've, I've serving God all the further I'm going to serve you. Don't you show me up and convict me about it. Let me tell you something. That's a person who is not saved. And one of the greatest issues, if you want to study church history, I'm, I, when I mean church history, I'm talking about what people call church, not what the Bible calls church. But the problems in those churches are in the true church as well. And one of the greatest problems is an unregenerate church membership. Someone who gives a false profession of faith in Christ and is not living anything for Christ. In fact, they're doing everything they can to hinder and stop the work of Christ in that church because they are in charge. That's one of the reasons I am so thankful that God allowed the history of this church as me as it's to be its first pastor. You know what? I didn't have to come into a church where these Balaamites were already well established and running the church. I can't tell you how many stories I know of pastors who said, boy, I, I would be the pastor God wants me to do if it weren't for the church board. I mean... The only board church, the only church board we have here are the little children who sit through the services and they're not quite interested in everything and they're bored in church. But uh, they're not the church board, amen? Did you get that little joke? I mean, just a little one, but. When we do business here at the church, who does the business? The church does the business. Because that's the way it ought to be. But what happens is pastors don't fulfill their duty. What kind of church would this be if we'd had five different pastors in seven years? There's no way that any pastor could lead this church if they're not there to do it. And so people in the church are going to move into those leadership positions... It's an unbiblical setup. And what happens is once you get authority, boy, you don't want to turn it loose. Especially if you've had problems and churches that have problems with preachers, and we're going to get on to that in just a few minutes. Who's going to be in charge of the church? Well, the church has got to keep going so. Hopefully there'll be enough godly men in the church to keep things going until God gives them a godly pastor. But sometimes those quote-unquote godly men get pretty comfortable, especially if it happens to be someone who's not even saved. Gets in a power position. Now, here's what Balaam did. You see, Balaam knew he couldn't fight against God. He went and he was going to prophesy and curse Israel. And God said, you can't curse Israel. So Balaam blessed Israel. And when it was all done, Balak got him aside and said, now listen here, the Lord has kept you from true greatness because I could have given you everything. 
And Balaam says, maybe the Lord hadn't kept me that far away. Uh, Let's go over here where he can't hear and we'll have a little conference. And Balaam used his own people. As far as we know, he was a Midianite. How many of you are familiar with the term, the lady named Cosby in your Bible? She was a daughter of one of the princes of Midian. Apparently, uh, she had, quote unquote, the female charms. And we are talking in the most basic sense. And she was able to allure one of the princes of the tribe of Simeon. Who said, hey, these people aren't that bad. I don't know why we have to fight all the time. There needs to be more unity in the greater body of Christ, one might say today. Turn on Christian radio and that's what you're going to hear out of every mouth. Turn on TVN. They're going, we need more unity in the body of Christ. We need to join together. That's what Balaam was. And it wasn't only the thing of immorality, it was participating in false worship. Yesterday we were visiting a museum upstate, an historic site, and uh, I think it was Peter tried to give the tour guide a, a track, and she said, I'm a practicing Episcopalian. And... Uh, Peter said, I'm not quite sure what that means, because it could mean anything, and he's exactly right. Because in the 60s, the Episcopalians decided it was time to hold hands with the Catholics, and there hardly is such a thing as a practicing Episcopalian today. Their churches are empty. Most of them are museums or uh, dance halls or uh, all kinds of things. Why? Because when you join up with other groups, guess who's going to benefit? It's going to be the other groups. When you embrace false worship, why do you think Sung Young Moon went around to pastors of other faiths and said, please let me hold a seminar at your church? Because No one in their right mind would believe anything that Sung Young Moon would have to say. But if he's standing there on the platform, and I knew the story of an independent Baptist pastor who was duped into this, and he gave that church $200,000 to use their pulpit as a platform to preach his foolishness. Now, I don't know if the deal ever went through. I was so sick that I just didn't even want to follow up and find out. So I don't know the end of the story. I don't want to know the end of the story. And I don't recommend that you try to find out who it was either. But listen. Joint worship is one of the key characteristics of the Balaamites. Could I use a modern term? Billy Graham. promise keepers. These are organizations who promoted joint worship. The Bible calls them Balaamites, still alive and well. 
this idea of all joining together. Jesus said, even in Pergamos, you did not deny my faith, but you're allowed the Balaamites in and they're teaching false worship, joining in false worship, and they're also teaching immorality, both physical and spiritual. You go back a hundred years, and let me tell you, it was a rare thing for a Bible-preaching pastor to be involved in immoral behavior. Wasn't quite so rare with his non-Bible-preaching counterparts. That has always been a part of the false church and false theology. But I know... Men, I could name their names. I know men that have visited this church who have been involved in immorality. Men who I once counted as my friends, who I once looked up to. Let me tell you, Balaam is alive and well. And if we do not guard ourselves and protect ourselves, immorality among people who call themselves Christians and show up to church every Sunday is almost on the same level as those who live in the world. The divorce rate is the same. It's a scary world in which we live. We've got to fight against the doctrine of Balaam as a church. And then we have the Nicolaitans. The best I can tell you, Jesus, every time he talks about the Nicolaitans, he says, which I hate. So let's just list the things that God says he hates in the Bible. And these are the things that the Nicolaitans and most historians go back and say that the Nicolaitans had something to do with bringing worldliness into the church. Oh my goodness! That's something we don't worry about today now, is it? That is the battle in my lifetime. As I was a young college student 25 years ago, The battle for the Bible was winding down. It had been, quote-unquote, lost. Most people who call themselves Christians, even most people who would wear the term fundamentalist, had turned aside their King James Bible for the new translations, and, and even a few of them were so arrogant to say, well, I translate my own Bible. Who do you think you are? Oh, man, makes me sick. But worldliness was just starting. And let me tell you, many, many, quote-unquote, good churches 25 years ago have gone the way of the world. They take the name off the door. Instead of Sunshine Bible Baptist Church, it's now just Sunshine. Now, what does that tell people? 
We got skylights in the ceiling in our church. I don't know what it says. Cross Point Fellowship. Brother Sam likes to talk about this church in Tulsa called the Gut Church. Now, you couldn't get away with that in New York City. Nobody here is that stupid. Amen. You're going to go to a church named after human entrails. Yes. Uh, I mean, the only people that would show up are the Goths. And they would be disappointed. Why do we do these things? It's because people inside the church are trying to appeal to the world outside the church. That, my friend, is the best definition of the Nicolaitans I can give you. And by the way, it has been a battle from the first century to the 21st century. It has never been a time when the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites have not been attacking the church from without and within. And if you look at any given generation, it looks like the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans have won. But what did Jesus say to his church? Thou shalt not deny my name. Or, I'm sorry, thou, heldest, thou had, holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Now we come down here to verse 16. We'll be done just a moment or so. He says, repent. Now the word repent is a very simple word. It just means you've got to have a change on the inside that changes the direction of the outside. That's all it means. It says you've got to turn around, church. If you allow the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans, they will take charge of the church. And let me tell you, if you want to study church history, it is the study of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans as they infiltrated true churches and turned them into false churches. That's why church history is such a difficult study is because you have churches at one time that were preaching the truth, and now they're not. You have other churches that moved back, and they got almost to preaching the truth, but it wasn't long before the Nicolaitans, the Balaamites come in, and they're moving right back to where they were or worse. That's church history, my friend. Jesus said, repent or else. You ever wonder where that or else came from? How many times have you said, you'd better stop this or else? You're quoting your Bible. Be careful. You don't have the authority of the man who used those words here. Amen. Be careful. Now look what he says. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against who? Jesus is not going to fight against his church, even though they are weak and they are struggling. It's his church, but he's going to fight against them. And what's he going to fight against them with? With the sword of my mouth. You let Jesus swing that sword, my friend. Don't you swing it. I've often had people say, Pastor, I'm in a bad church. What do I do? Find a good one. There aren't any good ones. I had a guy, he sent me probably four or five emails over like a 10-year period. 
I live in such and such a city and there's not one good church within a hundred miles. And I said, well, let me help you. Oh, that would be so wonderful. My family, we've been looking for such a good church. And I found out he had been to every good church within a hundred miles and deemed them not good enough for him and his family. Uh, could I tell you the problem was not with the churches? The problem was with the man. Amen. Repent. Better turn around. It says, I will come quickly. That's not talking about necessarily the time span between the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans coming in. It is talking about the way that Jesus will approach. He used the same term at the end of the book of Revelation talking about a second coming. And it's been almost 2,000 years since those words have been uttered. And he's still coming quickly, my friend. It's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen so quickly that you are not going to be aware unless you have been prepared and you are listening to he that hath the sharp sword with the two edges. Amen? And he's going to fight against them. And he has. History is full of isms, schisms. How many names of different religious groups do we have in history? that now no longer exist. Uh, maybe somebody fought against them with the sword. Amen. Put them out of commission. Well, there's going to be a new one coming up. Don't, don't worry about it. There will always be someone to replace. Same old garbage. Just different name. The Word of God will do the work. Very quickly here, he says, Repent. Or I'm going to come and there's going to be problems. I'm going to fight against them. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he which receiveth it. You know what? We're going to have to stop right here. I've gone over a little bit. and uh, But let me just... Uh, uh, give you just a quick idea here, something to think about. Read over these passages and, and the letters during the week. But hidden manna, God will always provide for his people what they need to serve him. Amen? And the white stone, don't go out to pasture on that. The only thing that makes any sense at all is intimacy of relationship. Jesus said, I'm going to give you something that's going to be special between you and me if you overcome. And one of the things you'll notice about every one of these things that is the reward of the overcomers, it does not belong to one single church or one single group. It belongs to every person who will hear what the Spirit saith and obey what the Spirit saith to the churches. Every Christian will be able to eat of the tree of life freely. Amen? Every Christian 
will not be hurt of the second death. Every believer, Paul put it this way, we shall know him for we shall see him as he is. Is that not talking about intimacy? Jesus said, the good shepherd knoweth his sheep. They know his voice. They follow him. I wonder what your pet name is going to be between you and Jesus alone. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Because Jesus will give you a name that will match your service for him. Sleepy. Grumpy. I hope that's not it. And I'm just playing names, games here right now. That's not Bible. Don't go out there and quote me saying, but it is an intimacy there between the Savior and he that overcometh. What is that name going to be? Is it going to be something to remind you of your great service for Christ and his victory in your life? The Bible talks about people losing and gaining rewards. It goes both ways, my friend. Let's hear what the Spirit said to the churches. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this night, and Lord, I thank you for the patience of each one here as gone over, but Lord, I just ask that you would burn within us the truths that are here in this passage, that we would be careful, that we would watch for the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. Lord, they're everywhere. That we would be encouraged by the church at Pergamos in spite of even the willful and wanted murder of a person for their only crime was being a true believer in Jesus. Lord, they still held fast your name and they did not deny your faith. Lord, let us be true to those two things for it's what you desire in your churches. Direct us that we may serve thee. Lord, never let us take that sword out of your hand. But let us be very careful where it cuts that we may take the warning and turn our hearts back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, just ask the pianist to play tonight. If you need to come and spend...